This is VOA News reporting by remote. I'm Michael Brown. U.S. President Joe Biden and Israel's Prime Minister agree on their goal with Iran, but differ on how to make it happen. AP Washington correspondent Saga Magani reports. In Jerusalem, we will not allow Iran to acquire nuclear weapons. We cannot allow Iran to become nuclear. But the president and Yair Lapid split from there. The U.S. is waiting for Iran to respond about a path toward rejoining a deal aimed at keeping it from building a nuclear weapon. When that will come, I'm not certain. The president says he won't wait forever. Meantime, Lapid says diplomacy is not the path. Words will not stop you, Mr. President. And Iran must instead face a real threat of force if it does not back down. Tehran is warning both nations of a harsh response if they take action. Sagar Magani, Washington. Ukrainian officials said Russian missiles struck the central Ukrainian city of Venissa on Thursday, killing at least 23 people and wounding more than 100 others. The governor of Venissa said Ukrainian air defense systems shot down another four missiles over the area. With a population of 370,000, Venissa is one of Ukraine's largest cities. Thousands of people from eastern Ukraine, where Russia has concentrated its offensive, have fled there since the start of the war in late February. Warfare continues to rage in eastern Ukraine, but the British Defense Ministry said Thursday that despite continued shelling, Russian forces have not made major territorial gains in recent days. As always, for details on more news, we invite you to join us at our website, that is voanews.com, also on the VOA mobile app. Via remote, this is VOA News. Sri Lanka's president, Gatabaya Rajapaksa, has resigned. He announced the move from Singapore, having fled angry protests at home, triggered by a deep economic crisis. A formal announcement is expected Friday. Rajapaksa had earlier pledged to leave office by Wednesday in the Sri Lankan capital of Colombo. Protesters occupying the official residences of the president and prime minister vacated the buildings. A curfew has been imposed in the city, and the troops are patrolling the streets, but reports say the city remains calm. Protesters are also demanding the resignation of Renil Vikramsinghe, the prime minister whom Rajapaksa had appointed acting president. Pro basketball player Brittany Griner was back in the Russian court Thursday, a week after she pleaded guilty to drug charges. Lawyers for Griner said the head of the Russian basketball club for which she plays vouched for her good character. Greiner has been playing in Russia during the WNBA offseason since 2014. She is also a two-time Olympic gold medalist. Greiner was detained at a Moscow airport back in February. Police said they found cannabis oil in her luggage. Greiner said she didn't mean to bring the oil with her. Greiner could face 10 years in prison. The state of Texas has gone to court to block the Biden administration's emergency abortion guidance. We get more on that story from Norman Hall. The lawsuit filed by Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton seeks to block Biden administration rules requiring that hospitals must provide abortions if the procedure is necessary to save a mother's life, even in cases where state law mostly bans the procedure. The legal wrangling is causing concern for doctors and hospitals. One Dallas obstetrician says emergency departments may face these situations frequently when patients experience miscarriages or ectopic pregnancies 
or when a woman's water breaks before a fetus is viable. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre called the litigation extreme and radical. Norman Hall, Washington. Ivana Trump, the first wife of former President Donald Trump and mother of his oldest children, has died in New York City. She was 73. People familiar with the matter tell the Associated Press that police are investigating whether she fell accidentally down the stairs at her home. And recapping a headline, this newscast, Sri Lanka's President Gatabaya Rajapaksa has resigned from an announcement expected Friday. As always, for more news, we invite you to join us at our website, voanews.com, or the VOA mobile app. Via remote, I'm Michael Brown, VOA News. Good morning, Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Barty in Washington. Today is Friday, July 15th. And here are some of the stories we are covering. The fourth African Union mid-year coordination meeting has opened in Lusaka, Zambia. We uh, go in that direction. We will reduce our dependency on our partners, but uh, we have to be effective and efficient. Mali suspends rotation of all military personnel belonging to the United Nations mission in Mali. Nigerian President Muhammadu Buhari says he is eager to leave power after eight years. Farmers in eastern Uganda say they are concerned about hunger in the region. And a Malawi political pressure group calls on President Lastra Chakwera to repeal his presidential immunity. We are reminding the president to walk the talk on his promise by seeming presidential powers especially by scrapping off the presidential immunity. And the African Development Bank agrees to help Zimbabwe clear its debt. Those stories plus Samson O'Malley's post are coming up on Daybreak Africa. The 41st African Union Mid-Year Coordination Meeting has opened in Zambia. Commission Chairperson Musa Faki Mohamed is calling on member states to quickly sign and ratify the African Continental Free Trade Area Agreement as a solution to the continent's challenges. Elias Lemoya reports from Lusaka. The 41st African Union Mid-Year Coordination Meeting has opened in Lusaka. Musa Faki Mohamed is the African Union Commission Chairperson. He used the meeting to urge member states to expedite the signing of the Africa Continental Free Trade Area. It is an ambitious trade pact to form the world's largest single market for goods and services of 1.5 billion people across Africa and is aimed at deepening economic integration. Mahamad says once the signing is done, it will enable AU member states to speak with one voice on issues affecting the continent. Ask member states to take uh, very practical and concrete measures in order to ensure that uh, we do something about uh, the dwindling contributions of resources. If we uh, go in that direction. We will reduce our dependency on our partners, uh, but uh, we have to be effective and efficient. Despite the difficulties, Africa shows that Africa is able to solve its own problem by itself. Senegalese President Macky Sow became chairperson of the African Union in February. 
when he took over from DRC President Felix Tisekedi during the 25th ordinary session of the Assembly of the Union in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. His Minister of Foreign Affairs, Aisata Taoso, became the current chairperson of the Executive Council and she addressed the Lusaka meeting. She says the AU mid-year gathering should quickly conclude pending business by focusing on trade integration and strengthening decision-making during the session. It is very important because the regional economic communities and the regional mechanisms will exchange opinions and views on issues, on very important issues relating to continental integration. This meeting is going to ensure that we do proper monitoring and evaluation of uh, coordination, harmonization and strategic planning of African Union programs, the RECs and member states in order to expedite the African integration agenda. The Continental Free Trade Area Agreement entered in force for 44 countries that deposited instruments of ratification, but it is not clear what has delayed other countries from signing and ratifying since it was introduced by the AU in Kigali, Rwanda, in 2018. However, on Sunday, the last day of the meeting, 12 heads of states are expected to attend. They will endorse the decisions that will be agreed upon in the meeting of the Executive Council, and it remains to be seen if more AU member states will join the free trade agreement. For VOA Africa, I'm Elias Limonia in Lusaka. A West African analyst says Mali's suspension of rotations of all military personnel belonging to the United Nations mission in Mali, also known as OMIS, is a clear sign of anxiety by the country's military government about its own security. In announcing the suspension on Thursday, the military junta cited Mali's national security concerns. Earlier this week, Mali said it apprehended 49 Ivorian soldiers, describing them as mercenaries. Ivory Coast said the arrested soldiers were not mercenaries, but part of the overall United Nations multidimensional integrated stabilization mission in Mali, also known as MINUSMA. Political analyst Ibrahim Khan says there is no room for hostility between Mali and Ivory Coast because both countries have a lot of internal issues to deal with. I think it's related to the fact that there is a kind of confusion around the arrival of uh, 49 Ivorian soldiers who apparently were supposed to be soldiers for Minisma but finally identify as uh, people belonging to some private security forces. So I think uh, the authorities are using that confusion to really stop any movement of troops. But at the same time, also, it's uh, a clear indication that uh, there is a lot of anxiety in Mali within the junta at the moment about their own security. Do you think that this might have something to do with the recent developments involving the arrest of the Ivorian soldiers? I think when you look at the issues very, very closely, that there was no threat about the presence of the 49 Ivorian soldiers. But there was a practice in the country that was uh, accepted by everybody. But now that the country is in a more very difficult and, uh, you know, special situation, now that they're discovering those practices not be allowed in the country, and there should be new processes to make sure that 
any soldier coming into the country comes into the country after a number of clearances. Because in Mali at the moment, particularly for the Janta, they think that insecurity is coming from everywhere, even from the neighboring countries. Ivory Coast denies mercenary activity. According to the Ivorians, they think that their being there is part of an overall MINUSMA operation. Well, the MINUSMA even denied that these 49 people were supposed to join any MINUSMA too. I think they were working for a private company. You know, there are so many institutions based in Mali and that are using private companies for their own security. I think these 49 belong to those categories of uh, security personnel coming in. Now, the problem is that uh, they entered the country without any clearance from uh, Mali security forces. But I also think that at the end of the day, Mali and d'Ivoire have together to really clarify the situation, make sure that uh, this uh, problem is contained very quickly because uh, neither Mali nor Cote d'Ivoire have an interest in uh, an escalation because both of them have many, many things to deal with rather than fighting each other. Ibrahima, thank you very much. Thank you very much, my brother. Ibrahima Khan is the Senegalese political analyst. You are speaking with us from the capital, Dakar. In Malawi, the political pressure group called the Center for Democracy and Economic Development Initiatives is calling on President Lazaro Chakwera to repeal his presidential immunity. The move, according to the group, will significantly boost the fight against corruption in the Southern African country. The calls come after the president suspended some senior public officials and sidelined the vice president over allegations of fraud and mismanagement. But in response to the move, the vice president demanded the president be stripped of his immunity from prosecution. VOS Peter Clotis spoke with Sylvester Namiwa, executive director of the Center for Democracy and Economic Development in the president then, the leader of opposition, made a number of commitments and promises to Malawians. The chief among those promises was the fact that Malawi was not doing good in as far as the fight against corruption was concerned. He therefore pledged to ensure that his administration is going to pursue a zero tolerance on corruption. Now, two years down the line, we are reminding the president to walk the talk on his uh, promise by seeming uh, presidential powers, especially by scrapping off the presidential immunity, which is contained in uh, Section 91, Subsection 2 of the Republican Constitution. What is the essence of him removing presidential immunity? What will this do if he does it? Two things. He will be delivering on a promise he made to Malawians, Secondly, he will be reaffirming his commitment in the fight against corruption because uh, prior to the uh, 2020 uh, presidential poll, we reached a consensus that our major problem has been corruption. Uh, billions of taxpayers' money, we are going down the drain at the expense of millions of Malawians that are living in dehumanizing poverty. Therefore, two years down the line, the president should walk the talk at the same time, he will be sending a signal that he is clean. Some Malawians are saying that what you are demanding, although right, the timing is wrong, because Malawi is confronted with a lot of economic hardships. The president leading this government is trying to find solutions to it. 
and that they, they want to survive first before thinking about removing presidential immunity. How do you respond to that? Brilliant. They should tell you what is the right time, what is the correct time to do this. First thing, the president promised that he, the first thing we, when he gets into the office of the president was to trim presidential powers because as a country we reached a consensus that almost all our problems, including the dehumanizing poverty, is emanating from the fact that the constitution is concentrating a lot of powers in one office, by extension one individual, that is the president. So they are right. All our problems, all these uh, uh, the problems we have, they are emanating from uh, the concentration of the too much power in, in one office. So this is the priority. If the president is serious, if the president is clean, if the president is not the chief beneficiary of the current corruption happening under his watch, then he has nothing uh, to, uh, to fear, the scrapping of the presidential immunity. But we want to set a precedent. No politician will get away with the lies they make to Malawians. If you want to promise Malawians, promise them what is achievable, what is doable. Malawians have to realize that the, the, the power of the people is greater than people in power. Sylvester Namiwa is the executive director of the Center for Democracy and Economic Development Initiatives. He was speaking from Lilongwe with viewers Peter Clotty. You're listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm James Butty in Washington. Today is Friday, July 15. Ahead on this program, Samson O'Malley Sports. This week, Nigerian President Muhammadu Buhari described his over seven years in power as tough, saying he is eager to leave office. Nigeria holds general elections next year to choose a new leader. President Buhari's administration has often been criticized over security and economic challenges, two areas he promised to address during his election bid in 2015. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja. Among religious groups criticizing the selection is the Christian Association of Nigeria, CAN. In a statement this week, CAN said the selection portrayed insensitivity towards the collective unity of the country, citing insecurities and a recent wave of attacks on churches. The association expressed concerns that the issues could escalate if there isn't proper representation in the corridors of power. This week, the ruling party's presidential flag bearer, Bola Ahmed Tinubu, a Muslim, named former Borno State Governor Kashim Shetima, also a Muslim, as his running mate. The APC said the selection was based on competence and not religious sentiments. Christian Association of Nigeria spokesperson Adebayo Oladeji told Fiowe this. We are not selfish. We are not saying you should pick a pastor. We are not saying you should pick one of our officials. What we are saying is that go for a Christian to balance it for unity, for peace, for development of this country. The country has been polarized under Buhari. Nigeria's population is equally divided between Christians and Muslims, which is usually considered when making selections for political office. But for years, Christian leaders have complained of being sidelined during top political appointments. Since last month, Christian groups have renewed criticism of authorities for turning a blind eye to a spate of attacks on Christians and churches. But the Nigerian Supreme Council for Islamic Affairs 
NSCIA refuted the claims that Christians were marginalized and told Fioway the council does not comment on political issues. Ibrahim Aselmi leads the Media and Communications Unit of the NSCIA. This is a purely political matter. So that's why we don't want to comment on it. Look at the southern states. There's always been Christian Christian ticket for all the state governors. The council has not made any comment. Presidential and parliamentary elections take place next February 25th and March 11th. Kant said the decision is left for Nigerians to make when they vote. But many local churches across the country have been mobilizing members and urging them to get their voter cards and use them wisely when the time comes. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. Local leaders from the Karamoja region of eastern Uganda are concerned with the continued hunger of the region that has resulted in hundreds of deaths. They say they want the government to intervene and find both short- and long-term solutions to the endemic hunger in the area. Reporter Mugumi Davis Rakarinji has more from Kampala. Faith Nakut, a legislator from the Park District of Eastern Uganda, says she was appalled when she visited the area last week. She says severe hunger has left many families devastated as families have had to survive on brutal residues or simply left to starve. Nakut says most of the affected are elderly, lactating mothers and children under five years of age. Our interaction with people showed that the situation is really bad. They showed us some of the graves that they, of the people who had died of starvation. She says at least 46 people have died of hunger in her district in just one month of June. More than 56,000 children aged 69 months are children malnourished in the Karamoja region, according to UN Children Charity, UNICEF. UNICEF says a total of 22, 740 children are faced with severe wasting in the region that require urgent treatment. Mary Gino is the chairman of Kabong District, also from the Karamoja region in eastern Uganda. Over 23,000 people in the district are really at the verge of dying. They are very, very vulnerable. From January to date, for 10 sub-counties out of 19, we have lost 183 people to starvation, which is really very embarrassing and very bad to report in this century and in a country like Uganda. Uganda's Prime Minister, Robina Nabanja, says the government is well aware of the problem. Cabinet has considered the issue of famine in the Karamoja sub-region and directed the Minister of Finance, Planning and Economic Development to draft a budget of 135 billion to provide food to communities in Karamoja. That is about 35 million dollars. She says the government has dispatched the first fleet of real food to the affected areas. Hunger has been rife in the region, but prolonged drought, insecurity in the form of cattle raiding have been blamed for starvation levels in the area. The situation has been worsened by COVID-19 pandemic that has resulted in market closures. Both Nakut and Mary say the government must act fast to save lives. But Nakut says the government has to provide lasting solutions to the problem. We must put in place an irrigation scheme in, in at least every district. Oh, and then we put in 
open up dams so that there can be water for irrigation or help people to open up fields, provision of tractors so that they can cultivate. Above all, they say the government must end insecurity and cattle wrestling in the area so people can easily go about their business. For VOA News, I am Gume, Davis Ruakarinjin Kampala, Uganda. The African Development Bank, or AFDB, agreed this week to help Zimbabwe clear its $13.5 billion debt during a visit by the Abidjan-based lenders' president. As Columbus Mavunga reports from Harare, Zimbabwe is one of 38 countries set to benefit from the bank's fund, which is known as the African Emergency Food Production Facility. African Development Bank, or AFDB president, Akinumi Adeshina said during his visit that Zimbabwe President Emerson Munangagwa had sought his assistance for Zimbabwe to clear its external debt, which started accumulating after the late Robert Mugabe's administration defaulted. I believe that Zimbabweans, ordinary Zimbabweans, have suffered long enough. You have a country, a beautiful country, in which you now have 40% of the population that is living in extreme poverty, and they do not have the resources to get out of that. So we have to create a new hope, a new pathway, so that tomorrow can be a better day than yesterday. Zimbabwe has a significant amount of debt arrears that it needs to clear. But you cannot run up a hill if you carry a backpack of sand. And so Zimbabwe cannot run up a hill for its economic recovery and growth and prosperity if it's carrying a backpack of sand. AFDB and Zimbabwe are looking for ways Harare can get access to international financial money while the debt is being settled over a long period. Mutuli Nguwe is Zimbabwe's finance minister. What we've done so far is to begin token payments for the African Development Bank and the, and the World Bank, a European Investment Bank, and also all the 17 uh, Paris Club partners. But what needs to be done is really to, Im- is to implement the full roadmap for areas clearance. But for this to work well, for us to be successful, we need a champion. And I'm pleased to, to say that uh, Dr. Adeshna has agreed to be a, a champion. Uh, uh, to cajole uh, all partners around the world, within Zimbabwe and everywhere, for us to be able to implement our areas clearance strategy. Columbus Mavungam for VOA News, Harare. It's time now for Daybreak Africa Sports, and here is something O'Malley in Abuja, Nigeria. A very good Friday morning to you, something. Good Friday morning to you too, James. We begin the sports in Morocco, where Nigeria kept up their sequence of having qualified for every Women's World Cup as they edged Cameroon 1-0 at the Women's African Cup of Nations in Casablanca on Thursday. Rashidat Ajibade's 56-minute header handed the Super Falcons a narrow victory in their quarterfinal in the tournament in Morocco. The top four finishes at Wafkan qualify for next year's Women's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand turning each of the last eight ties into a veritable final. Morocco and Zambia booked their tickets on Wednesday and Nigeria and South Africa joined them on Thursday. Staying with football news, Kalidu Koulibaly has signed a contract that will make him a brand new Chelsea player. The Senegal international is set to be the Blues' second signing of the summer. 
all that is left now is the official announcement with Kulibali reported passing his medical on Thursday and putting pen to paper in his four-year contract with Chelsea. Once that's done, he's set to hop on a plane and jet out to the United States, linking up with a squad in Los Angeles, Las Vegas this weekend. In athletics... Kenyan, Ethiopian and Nigerian athletes are understood to be part of World Athletes who have encountered visa issues in the race against time to compete at the World Athletics Championships in Eugene, Oregon. World Athletics said it was working with the Oregon 2022 Organizing Committee and the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee to follow up on visa applications affecting some competitors, but said the majority have been successfully resolved. The World Championships begin on Friday and last until the 24th of July. In basketball news, the governing body for basketball on the continent, FIBA Africa, has confirmed Abidjan and Monastery as host cities for window four of the FIBA Basketball World Cup 2023 African qualifiers. Abidjan Cote d'Ivoire, largest city, will host the first nine games of Group E, while Tunisian coastal city of Monastery will be the home to the first nine games of Group F. Monastery's Saleh Mohamed Nzali is a 4,000 capacity arena, while Abidjan's Palais de Sport Trakir can accommodate 3,500 fans. Games will take place from August the 26th through to August the 28th. Teams in Group E include host Cote d'Ivoire, Cape Verde, Angola, Nigeria, Uganda and Guinea. Group F consists of South Sudan, Egypt, host Tunisia, DR Congo, Senegal and Cameroon. And now to cycling. The much-anticipated 2022 African Track Cycling Championships pedaled off on Thursday at the Verodrome of the Mashud Abiola National Stadium Abuja with athletes from host country Nigeria and 14 others competing for medals and ranking points. And that's it for Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, James, in Washington. Thank you, Samson. Have a good weekend. And that's it for this Friday, July 15th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending your week with us. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa team, I'm James Butting, Washington, wishing you a very good weekend. (laughs) 